Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Time to check in now with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by opinion columnists, but oh, so much more than that. His name is Stephen Roach, and you'll know him from his time as former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia. Also, of course, he's a senior fellow at Yale University. Stephen, I want to talk to you about your call on the dollar, but first I have to ask you about this explosive book from John Bolton, all of the uh, allegations that he, he didn't make when he had the chance to give testimony, but is now making in a book. You know the Chinese administration, possibly as well as anybody in the administration, probably much, much more so. Do you believe the allegation that... President Trump pleaded with Mr. Xi to help him win re-election by buying American agricultural products, which would help President Trump in farm states. You know, Vani, I, I do not know, you know, the veracity of he said, she said allegations um, in any of this political intrigue from, um, you know, the Ukraine to um, Beijing. You, you, you hear an awful lot. And... Um, you know, it's it's clear that um, you know we we have a president who has pushed the envelope uh, in his uh, use of political leverage to achieve um, not just electoral results but but economic results. And whether or not he did, as um, former National Security Advisor uh, Bolton indicated, uh, utilize that those tactics in uh, addressing. Uh, the China conflict for political purposes in the U.S., it remains to be seen. I mean, Trump will deny it, and, and Bolton has, has got another point of view. And, um, you know, I have no idea as to whether or not um, Bolton is right or, as Trump says, he's, he's lying. Um, you know, the president has a inclination to um, stretch the truth a little bit as well, as we have gathered from his 18,000-plus lies that have been fact-checked by the Washington Post since he's been president. But, you know, I, I, I just don't know. Mm. So, Stephen, let's switch gears to your column here. Every time we have an FX strategist on, I, my first question is always, give me the bear case for the U.S. dollar, and I rarely get a good answer or any answer at all, but I think you've got one for us. What's your call on the U.S. dollar? Well, fortunately, I'm not an FX strategist, Paul, so I, I don't have to <laughs> do this um, for a living because, you know, currency calls are some of the toughest calls to do. But, look, I worry about an unsustainable uh, dynamic that is now emerging between domestic saving or the lack thereof in the U.S. and our chronic current account problem, which requires us to borrow surplus uh, foreign savings from abroad. We entered COVID with a historically low domestic savings rate of only 1.4% of national income in early 2020. The 45-year uh, average is seven. So we're, we, we have very inadequate saving uh, and reflecting these um, explosive uh, budget deficit trajectory that we're on right now um, as you know, the, the Congress and the administration uh, address this precipitous decline in economic activity, 
our saving is going to go into negative territory. It did that once before in the um, global financial crisis. The average was a negative 1.8 percent, um, uh, you know, over the uh, the, the 2009 to 2011 period. But it's going to go sharply negative, I think, um, into the you know minus five to ten percent uh, area, and that's going to blow our current account uh, deficit to a new record uh, in excess of six and a half percent of GDP. The dollar serves the purpose of um, setting the equilibrium between savings and and you know the current account, and so I'm looking for a thirty five percent decline in the dollar over the next five years to um, uh, address that. Yeah, it's a stunning call. A 35% decline in the value of the dollar. That would change the U.S. economy irreparably, I imagine. Now, you do say it's couched in terms of the comparison between the U.S. and the currencies of a broad basket of America's trading partners. Would that include the yuan? Would China be a trading partner in the future, Stephen? Yeah, Vani, I mean, first of all, I mean, 35%, it's a big number. But, you know, if you look at the dollar, um, you know, it's, it's moved over the you know, the last um, 45 years, we, we had two, we've had two drops of 33% in the 70s and again in the mid-80s. We had a drop of 28% um, in the early 2000s. Um, these are against, you know, broad trade-weighted baskets of, of all of our um, uh, trading partners. So this is not outside the realm of the dollar declines we've seen in the past. And it would you know, the dollar would fall against, um, uh, I think, uh, the Chinese renminbi, yes. Uh, surprisingly, against the, the euro, which is the most unloved major currency in the world, but also against, you know, the, uh, the Canadian dollar, the Mexican peso, and probably even against gold and uh, cryptocurrencies like the Bitcoin. So, I mean, this is a broad-based decline reflecting uh, some serious macroeconomic imbalances that were have long been evident in the U.S. that are going from bad to worse as we speak. Stephen, very briefly, we only have just a couple of seconds, but could China really give the U.S. dollar a run for reserve currency? Not on a near-term basis. I think um, you know China's got a long way to go to liberalize its financial system to make its currency uh, fully convertible, open up its capital account, um, and China's got issues of its own. But uh, our reserve position has come down. Um, over the last 20 years, and it's likely to go further down uh, with the dollar uh, coming under the pressure that I envision. Stephen, it is always a pleasure to speak with you. Never enough time, but we thank you for joining us. Stephen Roach is Senior Fellow at Yale University, former Chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia, and Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Do check out his latest column, How the Coming Crash in the Dollar Will Unfold, for more details on our conversation just then. Looking at the market here again, let's think, just step back a little bit. You think back to mid-March when this all began. The market sank about 34, 35%. It's since retraced a lot of that move coming off the bottom, driven in large part by a Federal Reserve that has really been aggressive in, in uh, putting liquidity into the market. The question now for a lot of investors is, what's the next step? Uh, to help us answer that question, Lisa Shallot, Chief Investment Officer of Wealth Management at Morgan Stanley. They have about almost $2.5 trillion of client assets. Uh, she joins us uh, on the phone. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us once again. What are you hearing My from... Pleasure. Great to have you. What are you hearing from your clients 
right now? Are they? Did they feel like, oh, gee, I missed out on this rally, or I don't believe this rally? What are you hearing most often? Most often from the Morgan Stanley clients. Yeah, I think from our clients, and I think it's quite typical of many private wealth clients, uh, is a continued level of skepticism. Uh, skepticism that, that the country is, quote-unquote, in the clear with regard to uh, the virus, skepticism that, uh, you know, the market is reflecting the economic reality that they see on the ground, uh, and and really skeptical about the longer uh, term. I mean, don't forget uh, our typical client is, is uh, you know, someone uh, that that's probably uh, over 55, over 60, uh, and they have you know, some historic perspective. And so they're asking us a lot of questions about what are the implications longer term of this rapid money growth by the Fed, of the exploding deficits and, and debt. Uh, and so I think that there is large amounts of cash on the sidelines, which is certainly a constructive element for this market. Uh, but our clients, uh, for the most part, uh, are, are holding back. And, and I think that they're you know waiting for a little bit more evidence that things are truly improving uh, and that you know profits are catching up to the to this market which has anticipated a lot of recovery already lisa are they not then embracing the v-shaped recovery narrative and in that situation did the fed chair give them all the more ammunition to not embrace that yeah so you know we definitely you know we're writing about this so look uh you know my my team and and the folks on the global investment committee at Morgan Stanley uh have been trying to to lay out that narrative and and explain to folks and our clients that you know the way markets work is uh it it's not about the level it's all about rates of change and it's all about upside surprises and if you get positive rates of change and upside surprises Markets tend to go up and climb the wall of worry. Um, That having been said, you know, when you have a Fed that comes out and says, hey, you know, we don't think that uh, that the economy is going to be back to where it was in January 2020 until the end of 2022. I mean, my goodness, that's two and a half years from now. Uh, That's a pretty sobering statement uh, from the Fed. And I think, uh, you know, for folks who are more conservative, who've sat in the bond market, uh, you know, trying to take shelter, uh, probably heard those messages and said, you know, holy gosh, you know, he, the, the Fed doesn't think we're going to get out of this anytime soon. So where, what are you suggesting to your clients that they, as, as they think about perhaps even allocating some new capital, is it a typical 60-40 allocation or are you perhaps being a little bit more cautious? No. So we're uh, on the other side of that. So again, you know, we're trying to encourage folks to embrace the, the, what we have learned through, uh, you know, our history of, of investing in markets. And that is, uh, that, you know, uh, bull markets, uh, bear markets tend to end when recessions begin. The recession began, uh, in February. Uh, and we believe we're in the process of, you know, forming a bottom in this recession and the market is setting up uh, for a new uh, bull market. Uh, and that bull market uh, is probably going to behave the way others have coming out of a recession, which is a preference for uh, early cyclicals, things like financials, industrials, materials, transports, energy. Uh, and those are the types of uh, areas that are not 
excessively uh, overvalued today, uh, but where we do think that there's upside surprise that could come. And so, you know, we are encouraging folks uh, to take some risk here and balance those conservative portfolios, many of which on the stock side have been loaded up with the usual names, and, and you all know what they are, the right. tech stocks. Very briefly, though, Lisa, if it's not your typical recession, then will the market perform in the typical post-recession way after this? Uh, so I guess my response to that is there's never a typical recession. <laughs> mm. And so while the economic uh, composition of every every single recession is different and where the excess is and where the stress points are and where the victims are uh, 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 is always different, the market playbook uh, tends to be very, very, very similar. Uh, and that's what we're trying to tell clients is, yes, you know, maybe in the last recession, we were worried about financials and housing. In the one before that, we were worried about uh, the tech wreck. Uh, you know, perhaps this one, we're worried about, you know, parts of, of consumer discretionary and retail that are structurally impaired. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, we are going to have an economic recovery uh, and the market's probably in very similar ways. Lisa, thanks for joining us this morning. That's Lisa Shallot, CIO of Wealth Management at Morgan Stanley. Of course, client assets there totaling nearly $2.5 trillion, so a lot of money to put to work. Now, I want to bring in our next guest for a fascinating discussion on a certain book that uh, has come uh, to the attention of publishers all over the world. It's, it's coming out. Apparently, pre-orders are uh, through the roof. And there's also a movement asking people not to buy the book. I'm, of course, talking about the book that John Bolton has written about his time in the administration, 17 months as National Security Advisor. Let's bring in somebody who can talk to this for us, Bloomberg New Economy Editorial Director Andy Brown. Andy, thanks for joining Good to be with you. How much heft does John Bolton have as a critic of President Trump? I mean, he's always been a man of a little bit of bluster from time to time, partial to some dramatic moments, you could say. Will it have an impact on concrete things like polling, like voters? Um, I think this is why the book is so sensational um, and why people are taking these allegations so seriously that, you know, Bolton... Um, has enormous credibility as a hawk. Um, he is an uber hawk on China, on North Korea, on Iran. Um, you know, and he has a, a, a record of of, administer, of, of being in, in successive Republican administrations. I mean, this this is not some liberal tossing ac- accusations at, at at Trump. This is somebody who was by his side as his national security director for 17 months, and who was privy to all of the conversations or many of the conversations that he had with heads of state um, all over the world, including China's Xi Jinping. Well, let's go there, uh, Andy. You know, there's interesting uh, excerpts I've read about uh, President Trump, you know, effectively begging for China to buy uh, farm products, U.S. farm products to improve President Trump's chances with those farm states in the election. What, what are some of your takeaways on the aspects of the book that have been reported as it relates to China? 
it's 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 absolutely devastating. I mean, if if what Bolton is saying is true, it is absolutely devastating for Donald Trump. I mean, a major plank in his re-election campaign was supposed to be tough on China, in contrast to Joe Biden, who is supposed to be feckless and weak. And in fact, the account of John Bolton shows a U.S. president who is a pushover in almost every on almost every issue. Uh, in the U.S.-China relationship that matters, whether that's national security, whether that's trade, whether that's human rights, whether that's Hong Kong, um, he comes across as, as, and, and as you say, as an absolute supplicant begging Xi Jinping to uh, buy U.S. agricultural products so that he could win the next election. If John Bolton felt so strongly about this, though, and felt that these revelations were so explosive as to really dent uh, the president's credibility, why didn't he testify in the impeachment proceedings? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a good point. And, and, and clearly, that, that, that's, that's where he's weak, and, and that's why the Democrats are hopping mad. So, I mean, his, his, his accusation against the, uh, the, the Democrats is that they focus their impeachment too narrowly on Ukraine. And if only they had known about the, 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 the breadth of this, um, you know, uh, effort to basically sell American interests in, in, in return for uh, private political favor, that, you know, this might have got the president impeached. Um, so, I mean, he, if, if he had all this, why didn't he dish earlier during the impeachment process and instead of waiting for his lucrative book contract, two million bucks with Simon & Schuster? So it does, it does to an extent, undermine the, the, his, his central ac- accusation. So, Andy, as it relates to China here, what do you think the Chinese are rooting for in the uh, November presidential election? Do they want four more years of President Donald Trump? I think they'd be very happy to have another four years of, of Donald Trump. I mean, you know, this is this is they, they had pegged him right from the start as as a, as a leader who would be susceptible to inducements, uh, to flattery. Um, he was a businessman. He was transactional, and according to Bolton's account, that is precisely the way things have have turned out. And and look, this is not just my opinion. We have some very good reporting out of out of our Beijing bureau. Um, uh, you know. Um, uh, Pete Martin uh, wrote a story. He'd, he'd interviewed uh, a, a whole bunch of, of, of senior, current, and retired Chinese government officials. They said, we want Trump. Uh, and the reason they cited is that Trump undermines U.S. Uh, alliances. And that is the, the, the one thing that the Chinese fear. That is their biggest, to them, their biggest threat. It is the U.S. alliance and of course, if it is true what Bolton says, this sort of transactional nature, putting everything on the table, including Huawei, including ZTE, including the Uyghurs, just tossing it all into this, into the into, into the pot, subsuming everything to getting a trade deal and trading relations with, um, you know, with, with with China. This is deeply corrosive of the trust that underpins U.S. alliances all around the world, including in Asia. Maybe I'll be a little cynical, but does it make it more likely that we'll actually get a trade deal with China now because both sides will be sort of falling over themselves to prove that there was there was no backroom dealings and therefore, you know, that the two countries can get on well in public again? It's 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 really hard to read. I mean, we've just had this meeting in Hawaii between um, you know Secretary of State Pompeo and Yang Jiechi, who's China's top 
uh, diplomat. Um, you know, trade would and, and trade trade would have been on the table. We don't really know what the outcome of those talks was, although it doesn't appear uh, to have to have achieved anything that looks like a breakthrough. At least nothing that that, that either side have announced. Um, it's also notable, by the way, that uh, Robert Lighthizer, the chief U.S. trade negotiator, has denied. Um, some of the, the the more explosive claims that uh, that John Bolton made in his book. Yeah, and uh, those China claims were just the the beginning of it. Uh, and our thanks to you, Andy Brown, editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy, for joining us there. Bolton saying Trump not fit for office and, and lacks the competence to serve as president in part because he's solely focused on his political fortunes. I don't know many presidents for whom that's not a, a priority either, though. <laughs> Well, so we've been reporting this morning a historic day uh, from the Supreme Court on the immigration issue. A divided U.S. Supreme Court stopped President Donald Trump from ending the Obama-era program that shields 670,000 young undocumented immigrants from deportation and lets them seek jobs. To dig down deep into this, we are very fortunate to have our good friend June Grasso join us. June is a legal analyst and host of Bloomberg Law. You can hear that weekdays at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. June, thanks so much for joining us here. Give us your quick thoughts on this 5-4 decision out of the Supreme Court. Well, this is the second time this week that the court has ruled against the Trump administration. And this is a case where Justice Chief Justice John Roberts sided with the four liberals in the court. So it's a five to four decision. And he basically said that no one's arguing that the Trump administration could terminate the DACA program. Everyone agrees it can, but they went about it in the wrong way. They didn't provide a reasoned explanation for why they were doing this. The way they acted was arbitrary and capricious. This is a decision that we have been waiting for. It's the the decision that we've been waiting for the longest. It was argued early in the term. So you see it took a long time because there are so many different opinions. There's not only the dissent and the majority opinion, there are concurrences, concurrences in part, dissents in part. It's really complicated. So the line that I took from Atune was the appropriate recourse is therefore to remand to DHS so that it may consider the problem anew. Does this mean that the Department of Homeland Security will actually consider it, make better arguments, and the Supreme Court won't have any objection at that point? Well, they could do that. This is what the chief said. You can take it back again and you can redo it. But the thing is, that would take a long time because they'd have to come up with some reasoned explanation. They'd have to follow the rules. So it's unlikely they could do that within the end of the Trump term. If he's elected to a second term, they can try to do that and come up with better explanations that will satisfy the court that they've really thought this through. But this sort of reminds you of the census case where the Supreme Court's kicking it down the road saying, okay, you guys take it back now. We're done with this and we'll see what you do next. So June, for legal analysts like yourself and Supreme Court watchers, how surprising, if at all, is it that uh, how uh, Justice Roberts uh, voted here? Well, I thought it was surprising. This was a case that we didn't really have an inkling of how it was going to go. In other words, the case earlier this week on LGBT rights, that was a case where during the oral argument, you could sort of tell that Justice Gorsuch might be leaning in the direction of um, gay rights. However, with this case, it was very hard to tell what was going on. So I was very surprised. I think a lot of people were very surprised. And also, it's always surprising when you see 
that Chief Justice John Roberts is now the swing vote that mm -hmm. Anthony Kennedy was. And in the two cases this week, he sided with the three liberals. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a whole range of things to be surprised at, not least that this was a 5-4 decision as well, June. Um, remind us exactly how many people and who we're talking about. These are the dreamers, almost 700,000 kids that were born here that would have had to leave if this wasn't upheld. Right. And President Barack Obama started this program that allows them to continue to work and find a way towards citizenship. Uh, President Trump said that it was not within his legal authority, President Obama's legal authority, to have this program. So he ended it. So right now, the Dreamers have been in this sort of no man's land for so many months. And right now, they can go on with the program. They can re-up for more uh, of the program. They can feel comfortable that they're not going to be deported. And that's the big thing. There was this question of whether if the Supreme Court had said that this DACA decision was absolutely right and that Trump could go ahead, then the question was, would these 670, 700,000 young immigrants be deported. And some of them, remember, don't even speak another language. They've been here so long. They are American citizens. Most of them are well employed. So it's a, it would be really, it would be a torturous debate and it would really be a controversial thing that would, again, cause, you know, disruptions in the country. And I guess if, if, if it had gone the other way, then the potential was there for literally 700,000, uh, you know, all but American in name kids to be deported, uh, you know, ASAP. Just as right. Terence Thomas, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh all dissented. Yes. Now, it, Clarence Thomas, Justice Thomas, said that this was an effort to avoid a politically controversial but legally correct decision. So he said this would bind future administrations to what prior presidents do in executive orders. So think about all the executive orders that President Trump has written and issued. Should the next president be bound by those? But of course, you know, that's that's a, the legal issue. But Chief Justice Roberts said that that's not really the case because mm -hmm. it's just a question of how they did it. And this happens all the time to the Trump administration in the yeah. courts. On environmental issues, they don't follow the rules yes. when they do these things. June, we have to leave you go, but thank you, June thank Grasso, you. legal analyst and host of Bloomberg Law. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.